Well, good morning. We'll go ahead and get started. Today is uh, uh, June 4th, and we're going to start uh, the second part of Lesson 6 on how to meditate. Uh, since the, well, and so let's take a brief pop quiz as to where we've been. Um, <laughs> you should have studied, that's right. So just shout out answers. We don't need, uh, don't need a highly structured thought for this. Um, in our opening class on a survey of words used to describe meditation, um, what kind of words do the scriptures use? What words are they? Contemplative. Contemplate, yep. Yeah. Ponder. Ponder. <laughs> Stirring in the heart. Sure, yeah. What else? What are some other things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meditate itself, that's right. Speak within oneself, muse, mutter, think, yeah. So the in our second lesson, we described how the Bible, uh, we identified how the Bible describes the importance of our thoughts, and Gentile thoughts in particular, uh, were categorized under one large umbrella. What was that? What was the sum of the way Gentiles think? Futile. Futile, yeah, their thoughts were futile. I mean, they were vain or pointless. That's right. Uh, and what are, some of the, uh, what are some of the other ways our minds were described in our survey of the mind and how it's depicted in the New Testament? We had phrases like a debased mind, or he was out of his mind, or he was in a right mind. The scriptures have a lot of different ways of thinking about the condition or the state of our mind. We, when we finally got to the definition of what meditation is, we have uh, three different components to that definition. You guys remember what those three components were? You will if you tell us. <laughs> again? <laughs> yeah, there are three parts to it. The first was a, a serious or solemn or uh, deliberate focusing of the mind. Bending of the mind is how some would put it. Uh, to, to think about a certain thing. And the ideas... Uh, embedded in there is that we would gain an understanding and it would rouse our hearts. That we would be able to ponder these things for a while. We looked at counterfeits to biblical meditation around us. What were some of those counterfeits? Transcendental meditation, Transcendental meditation was one, yeah. Mindfulness. Mindfulness in some abstract way, yeah. Yoga. Yoga can be, that's right, yeah. Hibernation, yeah, that, that was hibernating. Yeah, that was just bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah, but some of those things they were clearly observed. Yeah, some dangers in them. Things the French did. and whatever it is the French were doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, there was it seemed to be it seemed to be more understandable that these superhuman gamma wave producing individuals from India and Nepal seem somehow natural, but the few from France was the key to understanding 
how weird that was. Yeah. And broadly speaking, uh, we looked last time at, uh, as we started Lesson 6, as to what were the um, two occasions, the two types of occasions for meditating. What were those? Deliberate is one, yeah. The regular, deliberate, and... Spontaneous. Spontaneous, that's right, yeah. Okay, great. You guys did well. We can continue now. (laughs) (laughs) So let's... uh, We're going to, today, uh, take apart... uh, We're going to briefly cover how to prepare for meditation, and, and then we'll look at how Bible study and Bible reading and meditation work together. So... I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of these, but I do want to uh, I do want to read some scriptures to remind us that this is a uh, a task that is attendant in scripture with many promises. So I don't want to uh, overlook those promises because some people are quite feel quite daunted in tackling meditation in their life because they just don't see how they can do it or how it will work out or what the condition is. And so we're, we're trying to help many different types of people in this section here. So the very first thing that is well worth remembering is that you should proceed from faith. You should trust that this is something that God wants you to do. Remind you of Romans 14.23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. These are, your, your mind being transformed is, is a duty and a promise that God gives us and something we can all expect to have some success with. Uh, secondly, we should believe and trust that God has promised to assist us in this duty. We are not left adrift. We are not left to do it on our own. And somehow if we get meditation down, we'll be close enough to God where it'll make a difference. Right from the start, God says he is there to help. Uh, I remind you in Hebrews 4 and 14 to 16, um, seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, do you have trouble meditating? Do you think it's just an impossible task? Does your mind wander? Does it seem like your thoughts escape and run wild? Well, there is someone who can help. And there is a throne of grace ready to assist us. And I'll remind you of Matthew 7 and verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you who, if if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So, in your, in your assessment, where would you find a settled mind as a gift from God? A mind full of, as Watson described it in the various definitions, that 
Grace breeds delight. The idea of meditating is not an arduous or distant or difficult task that's set off over here, but it's to fill your mind with delightful things. Meditation is supposed to be joyful. It's supposed to be insightful. It's supposed to fill you with wonder. Do you think your Father in Heaven wants to give you those things? Do you think God wants you to have a full and settled mind? Is that something that seems attractive to you? Or do you think he's going to give you a stone or a serpent? Right? I mean, that's the, that's the description Jesus is giving about those who come and ask in their need. What do you think God's going to do? Do you think you're hungry and you need something to eat and he's instead going to give you a serpent? Or do you think instead that he will try to help you so that you can have the mind he designed to be settled? There's a promise in 2 Corinthians 3 in verses 12 to 18 that I think attacks this question maybe a little more pointedly than these general ideas. But Paul says, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. Why does he put that in there? He's talking about Moses in this veil, but he describes it as, their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And remember, this whole veil metaphor is just understanding, right? That's what he's talking about. They were blinded in their understanding. You get it. They are not getting it. That's what he's describing. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So this idea that the presence of God working in your life is a glorious thing, and he's doing this to transform you from glory to glory. He's taking away your veil of ignorance. To do what? To display himself, to describe himself more accurately to you so you understand him better. You can delight in him. Psalm 119, 130 reads that uh, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So here we have, in David's account, an observation in Psalm 130 that God's word gives understanding to simple people. So do you believe that God will assist you to perform your duty? And one of the points David is making is even the simple-minded have this promise given to them that God's word will give them understanding. It's a beautiful promise to have. How about uh, viewing meditation number three here as a duty of great consequence? Sometimes in our duties, we don't think that this one's quite as important as that one. Maybe this one has more flexibility or maybe you're a little more suited to fulfill it. But how about thinking of meditation as something of great importance? And in Proverbs 4, 23, it tells us to keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. Remember the the third component of meditation was so that the mind could read, it could think, it could understand, and then it can instruct the heart. So the heart's not what's leading. 
the heart is being led by the understanding. And so with this in, with this in mind, how do you keep your heart with all diligence? Well, you get your thoughts organized. You get them settled. You have understanding, and then you can say to your heart, this is how you should live. If you want to keep your heart and do it with diligence, you need to do so through meditation. Nathaniel Renew, um, a Puritan uh, in uh, England, uh, has a, a, a short work titled Solitude Improved by Divine Meditation. And he has, he has this idea. It's a little awkwardly worded in the middle, but I think you'll get the point. He says, reading brings me meat. Meditation brings forth the sweetness. Reading brings the coals to the wood. Meditation makes the flame. Reading brings me the sword of the word. Meditation wets it or sharpens it. Reading barely proves pouring water into a sieve. Meditation is putting gold into a treasury. The former lets the water out. The latter locks the gold up. So here he's differentiating the idea between just basic Bible study and meditation is that one is just collecting the information, the other is locking it up and applying it to something of value for us later. Fourth point in our preparation is to fix a time. This is about the, we're discussing the uh, uh, deliberate or regular forms of meditation right now. You need to pick a time that's convenient for you. Uh, Pick the best time you can with the schedule that you have, but don't be afraid to change it. It could be some weeks you can do it at this time and other weeks you have to do it at another time. That's okay. Um, Joseph Hall, who wrote a book called The Art of Divine Meditation, it's a short work, uh, he says, one time cannot be prescribed to all for neither is God bound to ours, neither does the contrary disposition of men agree in one choice of opportunities. So here he's saying that God's not bound to a certain time, and even people, they, they all agree we can't agree on one time. And so the Puritans discussed what's the best time for meditating, and they concluded nobody can agree on what time is best for meditating, which is fine. You've got a schedule. Some people work a little better at night. Some work a little better during the day. Some work better in the middle of the day. Maybe your schedule does this or that. There's no prescribed time in Scripture to meditate. You're free to find a time. What you're not able to do is not fix a time. That's what you're not allowed to do. You need to, you need to plan your time because this is a matter of great importance. And then number five, it may seem, uh, may seem nuanced or maybe uh, not hardly worth a separate point, but planning for su- sufficient duration of time. When you do fix a time, you need to have a sufficient duration. Well... One of the reasons why this is the case is that because meditation has components to it, it's this reading, it's thinking, it's understanding, it's instructing, and it's pondering, and it, it takes time, that I, I fear that for many people, they allocate time to read, but they're not allocating time to meditate after that. And so it's, it's, it's an important consideration to have all the components sufficiently planned for during the time that you've assigned. So William, um, William Bates, another Puritan, uh, has an uh, observation here in a quote that comes from a, a contemporary book on this called God's Battle Plan for the Mind. The author writes, Bates provided principles to determine the length of time to devote to regular daily meditation. It should continue so long, ordinarily, till you find some sensible benefit conveyed to the soul. 
So he wasn't saying it needs to be a half hour, it needs to be an hour, it needs to be five minutes. He said it should, on a normal course of action, continue long enough that it's broad benefit to the soul. And it's worded that way, I think, so that we understand it's not so that you've sufficiently read a passage or you have fulfilled all the reading requirements, but that you've had time to make it of a benefit to your soul. And the, the sixth preparation duty is find a place to be solitary. That may seem obvious, but meditation is not a group exercise. It's an individual exercise. Um, now, what that doesn't mean is you've got other people in your house and you've got to clear them out with a geographical boundary of you know, two kilometers without any... That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to be alone with your thoughts. And so make sure that you don't turn it into a group exercise. It's not merely a discussion. Discussions are a very good thing, but that's not what meditation is. So here we have, uh, uh, this, came, this comes from Joseph Hall. It's a little longer quote, but I, I hope it'll be helpful. He said, solitariness is a place fit for meditation. Retire thyself from others if you would talk profitably with yourself. So this idea of talking profitably is, is one that came up as we discussed the way different words describing meditation are used, there is often the idea of muttering, uh, repeating things, of saying things. So if, if you think about the voices in your head, right, you can think about yourself talking to yourself, which is a good thing to do. It's instructing yourself as to how to think about this. You're, you're distilling what you've read and what you're understanding so that you can organize it and apply it to your heart. So talking profitably with yourself. There is no place free from God, none to which he is more tied. One finds his closet most convenient, where his eyes, being limited by the known walls, calls the mind after a sort from wandering abroad. So his idea is somebody goes into his, quote, prayer closet. Why? Because he knows the walls are there, and he can look around, and all he's going to see is a T-shirt. All he's going to see is this. It's... Not something he's going to be distracted by. Uh, another finds his soul more free when it beholds the heaven above and about him. That's what Isaac was doing, right? He was out on the field out there. It matters not. It matters not. So he be solitary and silent. Abandon, therefore, all worldly society that thou mayest change it for the company of God and his angels. The society, I say, of the world, not outward only, but inwardly also. There be many that sequester themselves from the visible company of men, which yet carry a world within them. So his point is not just physical distance, although that may be important, but getting away from the cares and the thoughts of the world as an important piece of your life. And he has this interesting observation about Jerome that I had never heard, and I couldn't find any reference to it, but you know, who knows, maybe it's apocryphal. And he says, they carry the world within them. And his comment is, who these people being alone in body are haunted by a throng of fancies. They get alone and their mind goes active with things of the world. As Jerome, in his wildest desert, found himself too off in the thoughts amongst the dances of the Roman dames. 
That's a, I don't know, that's a, that seems like a particular observation to make about somebody, but I think we can apply it broadly. But here's Jerome, and and it's it's an interesting picture. Here's Jerome off into the desert, and of course he's working on a translation of the Bible, and and he's, he wants to be alone, and yet he finds his mind wandering back to the Roman dames and all the dancing that took place. Uh, it's hard to control your mind. It's hard to find solitary places inwardly and outwardly. Um, and it's, I, I think it's also interesting, the Puritans, they had the same problems we did. They were trying to help their people realize that uh, we blame much on being distracted, which is a popular word to describe elements of our culture today, and we're distracted by this and distracted by that. Well, Jerome was distracted. He didn't have an iPhone. <laughs> right? I'm not even sure how much water he had, right? <laughs> he's down in the middle of nowhere, uh, and here he's distracted. So uh, you may have additional distractions in your life, but you're not unique, and you, you can't blame the difficulty of taming your mind on the time in which you live. The saints of old, even in the 4th century, had the same problems that we did. So there's nothing new under the sun, and the preparatory work for meditation is, is really important. So I'll, I'll stop there before we get to our next section and see what comments you have about preparing for meditation. One of these six steps. Yeah. I'm just struck especially by number one and number two there to acknowledge that the, there's a vast difference that I've experienced. I've really been struggling with the, for many months now. Uh, God's promise to settle. Yeah, I'm struck by the, uh, sorry, that now there's a pond. It's the same pond every day. At some points, it's calm. It's glass. You can see, it looks like it's made of glass. You can see the reflection of the other side. It's perfectly still and quiet. We live in Oklahoma, and there are times when, this came through the other day, just very powerful storm. Just you're, you're struck by the power of the storminess. Same thing. Crashing and everything versus calm. And that, that is how my mind can be. Same mind, same me. But at this time, very not well. And at this time, or just very um, tumultuous. Lots of turbulence. And then at this time, very calm by God's grace. And so kind of writing that out or saying that his promise through this is, is to move me toward to use the time of great turmoil for certain things. That's a whole other discussion. But through faith and with his promise there to assist that, the, that he can bring the calm there and it's good yeah. it is good and, and I think we live in a world today where people do not value a quiet and settled mind with nearly the amount of importance that they should I my experience my, my mind runs and there's uh, many things worth thinking about many good things many many bad things that can just invade but having a quiet and settled mind what a what a gift a gift. Any other comments on preparation? 
All right. Well, I've got uh, one more section I think we can get through. Uh, I want to talk about the our, our three major um, areas of content for meditation. Do you guys remember what the three were? I should have put this on the quiz. Mm-hmm. What are the three? You guys remember? The word? Inspired word was part of the content. Creation, providence. Those are the three main areas for uh, content in, um, in meditation. So I want to take a look this morning. This isn't, I don't think, terribly insightful, but it might be worth uh, remembering just to keep the distinctions in our head. When it comes to the Bible, the very first thing is reading the Bible. And, and just, just the basic act of reading the scriptures. It's very difficult to build a life of meditation if you are unfamiliar with the scriptures. Meditating about creation is important. Meditating about providence is important. But since those are not, uh, those are more apt to be misunderstood than what the scriptures teach us, the final authority, the only rule, of faith for our lives is the Bible. We start with it, and these other areas come along for the ride. So, when you read the Bible, do you have a plan? What's your plan to read the Bible? The Bible's a big document. Do you read things appropriate to your circumstances in life? Are you depressed, anxious, uncertain? Are you discontent? Are you bitter? Are you happy? Sad? There's lots of different things going on in all of our lives. And are you reading things that are helpful for that particular time in your life? Do you start with stuff you can understand? I find people to get wildly confused about areas of the Bible. And I think, well, why don't you read the stuff you do understand? Why read the hard stuff? What's, what's the point of that? Um, read things that are simple, and then you can work into more difficult territory. And then how well are you at identifying the amount of material you can read and meditate on? When you sit down and you fix your time and you fix the duration of time, do you also have in view the amount of material you're likely to be able to cover? I mean, are you reading the Bible so fast that you, you're not meditating on it? Are you reading it so slow you're never going to get done? I mean, those would be two different ditches we can fall into. And there are different ways of reading the Bible. There are times when I listen to a whole book. I might listen. I mean, Ephesians is a letter. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't stop and say, we're only going to talk about chapter one. There was no chapter one in Paul's letter. Sometimes it's helpful to get a big picture. I've been plodding through Psalm 119 for a while now, and it seems like, well, we're just about at the end, but it's taken a good long while. Some different ways of reading the Bible, but you have to have some ability to have a span of material that you can then apply, study, and think about. So, when you study the Bible, you ask yourself, what's happening when I read the Bible? When I read this passage, what's going on? What's being said inside this passage? Who are the people involved? Why are they there? Why is it somebody else? Where's God? What's he doing? When, who's acting? Who's being acted upon? Who, is, who are all the players? What's going on? What's the point? Why is this story in here? We could have another story, but we don't have that story. We have this story. Why do we have that story? These are all questions you should be asking yourself that are not properly meditation, but they are in study to help you understand. Sometimes you read a commentary, sometimes you read a book, but you you get help to understand the section that you're in. Not everything in the Bible is simple and clear. 
And you need to be able to find out what it is that's being said and why it's there. So step two is you've read the Bible, now you're studying the Bible. And then the third step is applying. Study is not meditation. Working through a hard passage to understand what it says is not the same thing as meditating. It's one of the components. It goes into it so that you can uh, apply your, to your heart what's going on. Study by itself is not meditation. Study precedes the application for meditation. So you can study without meditating, but you really can't meditate unless you've studied on something. And both of those require reading to be done initially. So if you could think of it this way, by way of analogy, the difference between ingesting and digesting material. You can ingest lots of material, but you may not be digesting any of it. At some point, it has to be broken down and become useful for the body. Ingesting and digesting would be the difference there. And then the, the goal of meditation is to rouse the heart. It's to guide the affections. It's to bring instruction to you as to how to think about God, the world, your position, what he's doing, his care for you, the promises, whatever the case may be. So you've read this material, you have an understanding of what this material is, and now you're trying to guide your heart to say, what can I do about this material? How is it going to affect me? What's the point of reading all this? Now, not everything in scripture is as pointed that, le- that leads to immediate action, but meditating on these things by pondering them for a good long while helps us to understand how we can change and settle the heart. So when you guys read the Bible, I'm curious, when you read, how do you develop what it is you want to read? How do you think about what it is you want to study? And then what questions do you ask yourself when you want to apply what you've read to your heart? So let's start with the first one. How do you decide what to read in the Bible? That's good. What else? What goes into guiding what you read? What I've done before is you're, you don't want necessarily want to uh, do too many times a row a certain pattern. So it's like, okay, if I've been altering a, a good song. What about just a few straight read-throughs and then change the pattern again? Sure, change it up. Yep. How about when it comes to study? What do you guys do when you read something? You think, well, whatever. <laughs> what happens after that? What do you do to, what do you do to study? Because I think the easiest part's reading, isn't it? You know, you just plow through it. There's words on a page. I understood all the words individually. <laughs> I don't know why they're all strung together like they are. (laughs) So what do you do to study? What's the next step? Commentaries or you can have a study Bible. 
Sure. Yeah, there are lots of useful guides to help us understand the scriptures. Yeah, it's 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 no sign of weakness to say I have no idea what's going on. I'll just let Matthew Henry help me out and figure this out. Well, sure. Why not? He dedicated his life to it. Why would you not? Why would you not trust him? So, yeah. Well, let's look at this this third one, applying it, because I think this is the one that is maybe the most difficult. How do you guys think about, after you've read something, you understand it, how do you go about applying it? What are, what are some of the questions you ask or the steps that you take? Ask Right. Yeah. Yeah. What what did what did what did what did it tell me about God? What does it tell me to do? What does it tell me not to do? Uh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. What else? Bruce? Yeah, I think that one that question about what should I believe is an important question. We might tend to separate that out into well it's not really action, but there is something about believing that is a decided act of faith that the scripture leads us to. And, uh, you'll hear a little bit of this in the Sermon on First Peter, the idea of consecrating the Lord God in your heart that has in mind that we are to believe the truth about God. And it's, it is an act of faith to take those things. What, what is this saying about God? What is it saying about God? about myself, as Jeff said. What am I to believe because of this? So there are a lot of errors, there are a lot of falsehoods that that are put out or that we, we fall into uh, certain ditches. And so uh, one act of application is what, what am I to believe? It's it's a, an exceptionally important aspect of it as well. What what do I what what do I have as a settled understanding in my heart uh, as I think about God and what He's done? Uh, one of the one of the things that uh, has become clear to me as I've thought about this topic of meditation is the great power of meditation to disabuse your mind of unbelief, to face a doctrine that you don't believe and use the act of meditating to instruct the heart, this is how you should act. This is what you should be thinking about. This is what you should believe. And we, we tend to think unbelief is often just a mental exercise. And it's not. I can give you a proposition, and you may understand the proposition, but you may not trust and believe that proposition. If I told you that God loves you, how many of you would say, oh, yeah, I believe that? I believe that with all my heart. I believe that every day of the week with all my heart. No, you don't. I know you don't. Nobody does, right? It's a foreign thought. Why would he love us? But the scriptures paint that picture. And the act of meditating can disabuse your mind of a lot of unbelief. Going back to that pawn thing that I was talking about, there's some of what Bruce is saying. uh, I mean, it seems very internal, very... Let's use the word meditative. When the storm has happened, and there may be real, so when I'm in a period of much storminess, it's not going well. There may be real things about it. There may be false things, things 
that are not true or I can't see past. It's just, I don't, it waves and rain and sticks are fun. I, I, I don't know. But the, if God is at, if God, back to your previous slide or two about faith and his promise to start to settle, and when the truth is coming in, I, there can be a glimpse of hope. The, the calm may start to come internally by realizing that, wait, what's actually true are several things. For me, lately, it's been a lot about just simply his his care and his being completely satisfied in and of himself, despite not being where I want to be, not physically being where I want to be, all, all kinds of problems. And so the heart it is roused to greater faith to say, these things all may be, but I have calmness, I have this steadiness that's here, God is rousing that, and so maybe the storm starts to dissipate because I realize these are not true, right? I don't even know what's true, but this I do know is true, part of the medication. And, and it kind of starts to be, maybe a shift is maybe the wind can start to die down if he's being gracious in that moment. So, um, I, you know, I can't just rouse my heart, like white knuckle this thing, just completely do it by a power of will, and yet he's working as well in the power of will so that it would be and in my will, that it might be settled by his uh, by his power coming from these means. I don't know. It's, that's a lot of words, but it, it it's hard to describe. But the the calm can start to come through that, and the heart be roused roused to calmness, which makes a huge difference then on what I might do. I might, oh, sure. I yeah. might res right. respond coming from there in in actions. Yep. What a cover one more section and this is um, I, I don't want you to think that well I really need to get this part down I don't I, that's not the point it's it's um, odd but it's insightful at the same time so Joseph uh, Hall uh, has this table called degrees of preparation and proceeding in the understanding and I was struck I, I wanted to put this because in here because it, it can help under, it can help us shed some light on what does it mean to understand something. Now, uh, I don't I don't he doesn't say where he got this. He mentions it's just an ancient author, and some of the words he uses were already obscure in the 1600s. So that doesn't help anything. You think, well, where did this come from? I couldn't find it anywhere. But I Hall scale of Preparation and proceeding in the understanding. Um, so it's given in these 11 points. And the first is to question. What is it? What I think or should think when I... Now, this isn't just about the Bible. This is just understanding in a philosophical sense. What is it I think? What do I think? What, what should I think? And then there's the act of discussion, which means to... Um, it's a common, it's a, it's a legal term now in credit, but it's, it's a cutting out. Uh, a, a repelling of what I should not think is another degree. I, I need to understand what I should include in my thoughts, but I also need to take away these things because it's not the thing that I'm trying to understand. Then there's the choice or election. What is most necessary, expedient, and comely in this idea that I should be attracted to the idea? Then there's the act of, and those three 
those three are the uh, the preparation, and then the proceeding and understanding comes from commemoration and actual thinking upon the matter that was elected. You think, yeah, I can kind of see that. I'm I'm I, I'm contemplating this idea. Then there's a consideration, a redoubled commemoration of the same until it's fully known. So he's distinguishing between the beginning of some understanding and understanding that becomes comprehensive. Then there's an attention, which is a fixed and earnest consideration whereby it is fastened in the mind. So now it's not just a a, a known thing floating, it's I understand what this thing is. It's it's attached now. Then there's the ability of in explanation, a clearing of the thing considered by similitudes. What's it like? How can I think about it via analogy? How can I bring it about? Um, I can understand it better because I understand these analogous items. Then there's traction and extending the thing considered to other points where questions of doubt are discussed. What are the, what are the tangential points out there? What's on the periphery? Dejudication, which means to judge. An estimation of the thing thus handled. What's, what's the importance of this in the hierarchy of things to be discussed? And causation, a confirmation of the estimation thus made. What if, what if, how does this thing come about? And a rumination, um, they called it a sad and serious meditation of the former. And sad doesn't mean um, mournful or discouraged. It's just the seriousness. It's the deliberate effort. A meditation of all the former till it may work upon the affection. So here he uses the word rumination, which is one people used to use about meditating as an analogy, that, that you need to ruminate on God's word until you understand it. But this meditation of the form until it work on the affections. And this, what I found interesting is kind of distinguishing all the different ways in which we understand something and how fully we might understand something. But even here in this ancient author, whoever it is, thought that it was important at the end that there be some movement upon the affections at the end of your gaining of understanding. That it wasn't just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It wasn't, it wasn't just to be smarter about something or to be wiser about something. It was to have it move the heart, to instruct the heart. Now, I have, I have never thought about all these things. <laughs> it's sort of interesting to have a chart describing degrees of understanding. Me thinking, hmm, I didn't understand that before I started. So there's, there's something kind of puzzling about doing that. What's your impression of, of a table like this? I mean, this is definitely a philosopher's table. They love to make these distinctions and such. This is how you really learn any material. It's not just a rote understanding. It's not multiple choice. You have really gone through it and thought deeply about it, making comparisons and... And then you can put, you know it so well, you can put it in your own words. You're not mimicking somebody else. So this is a very good way to learn. Anyway. It, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's interesting. What else? You can't I just, go from one to 11 without. There's steps. You really can't. Yeah. You can't, you can't think, you can't look at scripture and think, this is what I should think. 
That's right. Yeah, no shortcuts. Yeah. yeah, there's no there's no ellipsis. There's it's one through eleven. I use a very modern term. Uh, I think of the process more organic than uh, step by step. Is a very Puritan definition. It seems like. <clears throat> yeah. What else? just 11, that word's kind of has been wrestling with this a lot, this concept of rumination and how much, in my case at least, maybe nobody else struggles with this but I bet you do, I would I immediately want to ruminate on what I see what, what someone is doing to me, where I wish I was all the things that are here I want to ruminate on those instead of maybe going through the work of this that it might be guided to to in, to end up ruminating on the, on the things of God. Like this is like a fork in the road constantly. Uh, so I'm just struck by that. Uh, and it's highly related, by the way, to that storm versus calm. There's a... How we describe the flow of mental activity can often shape the way we're... we're we're going to uh, express this. I, I'm not going to dispute your use of rumination uh, in that because it's true, but churn also is another way of, of uh, moving something, agitating something again and again and again and again. Uh, I mean, it produces output as well. You might end up with butter at the end of the thing, right? So it's, it's not like it's, it's, it's not idle or vain in the sense it doesn't produce any output. Uh, rumination generally has, I think, more of a po- positive connotation to it of trying to uh, gently extract all the valuable things out of something. Um, it's interesting because early in my Christian life, I heard a lot about rumination and how it was a part of our lives. And, and they would always talk about cows. And I don't know, they got eight stomachs or ten or something. I don't know how many stomachs a cow has. Why does anybody know how many stomachs a cow has? And and this idea that, that this stuff is in one stomach and goes to another stomach and goes to... I, I don't even know what happens in a stomach. And it just occurred to me, like, this metaphor is kind of lost on me right now. I'm not sure. Maybe they have too many stomachs. Why do they have... Some, do you need all eight or ten or whatever it is? So the, the, it, was, it was lost on me as the value of it. And I, I found it interesting that the Puritans had some idea of how many stomachs some animals had and what those stomachs were used for. So I'm not even... A spy, I'm not even biologically as smart as somebody in the 1600s, so you can't say we've made nothing but forward progress. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. So, but There seems to be a, there's a decision, which sounds like a, a mental, kind of left-brainy word, but there's a decision, that fork in the road, of what you're, what you're going to be proceeding toward that you right. might ruminate in, take Psalm 119, that you're meditating on the word of God, the content of this class, etc that you may end up ruminating on the things of God and what he's doing, all kinds of wonderful things down that path, versus, no, you will end up over here in, in great grief over what you may end up churning on ruminating on. They're starkly different. They really are. The, the, the ends of those paths are starkly different. You're always instructing your heart. That's, the, the, it is inescapable 
you're instructing your heart. The question is, what are you using as feed material for the rumination? Yeah, cool. Any other questions or comments?